What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of FedWatch. My name is Ansel Lindner, and I am here with CK underscore Snarks. How are you doing, CK? What's up, Ansel? I got quite the setup here. Q upgraded the home base setup for me, so excited to jump in with some high-fidelity audio. Awesome. Yeah, I love the digs there. I saw Q was, is he just across the table from you? No, I, I switched spots with him, but he, okay. he he left the little studio we got set up here at the BTC, mag, or the Bitcoin Magazine Studios. Awesome. Hey, awesome. best damn macro show on the internet. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's get it, baby. Ansel's, Hell yeah. the best, Ansel's the best analyst on the internet. I'm just some idiot. Oh, no, no, no. There's much, there's people much better than I. I just learned from the best, but I was in the chat before the show and some people are calling me Rancel, and I don't know if I like that that nickname. <laughs> but as soon as I say I don't like it, then it's going to become a thing. So Man. thanks thanks for watching, everybody. Big show, big show lined up. Yeah, we're, a lot of talk- international stuff. Yeah, a couple stories that one that might be flying under the radar, and one obviously that everyone's talking about Taiwan and China. Mm-hmm. But before that, thought we'd talk about uh, the Bitcoin chart and maybe some currencies, and go from there. Let's do it. All right. So up front, the first one here is the Bitcoin weekly chart. This is the one that Q seems to like a lot. It shows the volume by price on the right hand side. And man, the candles, the weekly candles have just been so boring. No volatility. I mean, pretty much flat for the last three weeks. If you go to the next image, that is zooming out a little bit. And I tried to look for a comparable time to this. Maybe you could say early 2022, but I think it's more comparable to some of those candles that we saw back in September, October of 2020. So Christian, what do you think about the price? What do you think about the charts? Where do you think we are in the Bitcoin cycle? All that. I mean, it's tough to tell right now. Generally speaking, the longer that we kind of stay at a similar price range, the scarier it gets that it might just dump down. You know, I like to see momentum. So the chart right now, it looks like higher highs and higher lows. But if we just keep seeing, you know, drawn out kind of consolidation, you know, it could always dump down. And we've seen bear markets where it's consolidated or even had a little rally only to only for people to dump. I really like to look at uh, what miners are doing, especially public miners. You know, they have to report their sales. And a lot of miners, I saw a tweet, it was really interesting. A lot of public miners are selling more Bitcoin than they're mining right now. So that means they're selling the rip. Uh, and that is obviously an indicator of a general bearish scenario. Obviously, I think that people should be in position to stack. You should have cash flow. You should have some dry powder at all times. But yeah, I mean, nothing nothing new here. What do you think? Well, that's an interesting stat. So I, I think the net accumulation by miners is still positive, though, correct? I mean, I honestly don't know much. It's just, you know, quarterly reporting from these public miners. And it sounds okay. like, you know, they're selling the rip still. From the big from the big names. Yeah, very interesting. I thought that I've been waiting for a nice big green candle on the weekly, but that has not come to fruition. So yeah, I'm starting to think that this is somewhat of a bear flag. I hate to say that, but we could dip a little bit here. I don't know. I'm still extremely bullish and 50-50 in the near term, really. I'm 
not bearish or bullish, but I think we could rip. We could also dip a little bit here. So, okay, let's go to the next chart. That is the dollar DXY. I just want to update this because we talk about the dollar a lot here. And just to give a weekly update or bi-weekly update or whatever, we have the top kind of seems like it's in, but it has not fallen. You know, we had a big rally and we have not seen a big dip consolidation here in the dollar. And I really don't expect that. Nothing in my analysis of the dollar has changed over the last couple of weeks. But one thing that has changed over the last couple of weeks is if you go to image four, this is the Hong Kong Monetary Authority press release. So if Chris, can you go to the next image, number four? There we go. So every month they come out with their balance sheet, you know, how many foreign reserves are they still holding? And remember, they are pegged to the U.S. dollar at 7.75 to 7.85 in, in a small little range. When it starts going towards that 7.85 and threatening to break out above that, that means that they have to actually sell dollars and buy Hong Kong dollars. So it's very important to know what their foreign reserve balance is. And I was expecting this to be a pretty big drop from last month that came in at, let's see, 447 billion. And I thought we could get down to maybe 400 billion or something like that. But really it's only been a five or $6 billion drop in their foreign reserves. So I'm thinking that the Hong Kong dollar is actually quite stable at this point. And that tells me that the kind of pressure in the financial system is less bad than I thought it was. So that's all I have for currencies. Do you have any thoughts on that or thoughts on Bitcoin in the next couple of weeks, Christian? I mean, I would say it's un I'm unsure if stability in the financial system is bullish or bearish. It seems like maybe a return back to normal, a little bit of stability is rocket fuel for all assets. But on the flip side, the narrative is supposed to be that Bitcoin is going to you know, replace, replace the system, Bitcoin, when the system fails, that's good for Bitcoin's price. So I feel like that's something that's kind of difficult to square still. Yeah. The, the common idea is that Bitcoin is a hedge against these bad economic times coming in the future. And when the, the market is doing well, I mean, what's the narrative for Bitcoin to do well, but Hey, it's been correlated with stocks recently as well. And if stocks are going going to go higher, then Bitcoin will probably go higher. And, you know, everything is good for Bitcoin, like you tweet out all the time. Everything is good for Bitcoin. So bull markets, bear markets, it doesn't matter. Bitcoin will continue to kind of mutate and grow. So, Well, that's the thing is like what I think people don't accept fully is that like, Bitcoin has no standards. Bitcoin has no morals. Bitcoin has <laughs> no boundaries. Like, you know, Bitcoin is just going to like take whatever, it, you know, opportunity is in front of it. It has no yeah. choice. It is, you know, uh, there's a Bitcoin Tina quote that coins like water. You can't stop it and it gets everywhere. So, you know, eventually... <laughs> You know, eventually it's going to seep into every aspect of the internet, every aspect of businesses around us, into all of the political and, you know, geopolitical game theoretic incentives. You know, it's going to seep into all of that. So, I mean, that's why everything is good for Bitcoin, obviously, because, you know, it, it has no, again, it has no boundaries. It's just going to do its thing.
Right. And it's permissionless, right? So you can build, if it's a, a bull market, maybe there'll be different companies coming out with different products that will help Bitcoin during a bull market. And when it's a bear market, you'll have the opposite. So the permissionless makes it You're able to adapt. Here's an interesting example. It's like during the bull market, people talk about how public miners accumulate too much hash rate and that, you know, they're centralizing Bitcoin hash. And then in a bear market, one, you see public miners and the large scale miners dumping coins, but you also see them getting forced to dump actual rigs. And if anything, they're subsidizing the price of rigs to get to America and get built for, yes, smaller scale miners and, and plebs. So there's this kind of like cyclicality, this kind of positive reinforcing that happening within the Bitcoin ecosystem that I think is derived from the good incentives that exist within Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, really good point. Also, as a free market, then, you know, you would expect luxury goods, which might be the brand new cutting edge miner could be considered a luxury good. The free market makes it so the luxury good actually trickles down to the common people. So maybe that's that's kind of a comparison there, too. Anything else to add on Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, keep stacking, y'all. There's a lot of uncertainty in the immediate term, but in the long term, the thesis is still sound. There are not making mm -hmm. more Bitcoins, and there are a lot more people that are going to get into it. So it's really just a demand side thing, and I, I think the demand side is, is looking pretty bullish. Yeah, especially when they see things like Pakistan, what, what we're going to get into next. So we saw, you know, Sri Lanka collapse right that was what about a month ago that it really the shit hit the fan over there and they stormed the their capital building or whatever the same kind of looks like it's happening to pakistan and there's a couple of corollaries here so of course we all know that sri lanka was invaded by the wef the world economic forum and they had kind of wrecked the agricultural sector of the economy by putting all of these esg practices in into effect, very similar to how, you know, the, the Dutch are protesting this and the Italians and the, the Poles and the Spanish, everyone over there in Europe are protesting these ESG effects on agriculture. Well, um, Pakistan is not immune from that. So Pakistan also has gotten a lot of money from the WEF. And this is a tweet from Im Imran Khan. That's their previous i believe he's president might be prime minister but the head of their government and he brought in the wef and now they have you know spent hundreds of millions in pakistan on agriculture as well as possibly taking land away from agriculture and putting it towards national parks so you can see kind of the trade-off that the wef is pushing but people are starving right so you don't necessarily want to get rid of your agricultural land that's a corollary or the the same thing with Sri Lanka, but also China is in this ballgame. So China was a big player in Sri Lanka. They gave a bunch of high, high interest rate debt to Sri Lanka and forced them to bankrupt themselves to pay off this debt. And in the end, when they couldn't, they ended up taking the port, uh, taking possession of the port. I don't know what's going to come of that in Sri Lanka, but the the big port there is was taken over by China. Now, Pakistan is also high on the list of getting Chinese debt. So I think Pakistan owes Chinese companies 
not just the main like state-run banks, but other companies as well, over $20 billion. And these are high yielding, high yielding debt. I think it's a roughly 6% on these, this, these Chinese loans, where the international average, like if you're lending to government to government or whatever, it's about three to 4%. So they're paying, they're almost paying double to these Chinese lenders. So that is two very similar things with these two countries. And my kind of thinking on this is China has a lot of problems on its own, but now two of their star pearls in their belt and road initiative are going under. So the next, I think it's the next slide is the map. Let's go to the one with the map. It's slide number seven. So you can see Colombo, that's the capital of Sri Lanka. And this Gwadar is the, this Pakistani port. And these were two very important nodes on the maritime route of the Belt and Road, as well as pa Pakistan having pipelines through it and everything. If Pakistan's government falls, perhaps the BRI also falls or has trouble. Um, it's lost a lot of international clout over the last, I would say, six months with Sri Lanka. And if Pakistan, another very important node goes down, BRI could have a really hard time ever coming to completion. So that's that's what I have for, let's see, what else? Do I have another one more image? Yeah, that's the, if you go to number six, let's do number six. That is, this is a chart of the Pakistani rupee. And this year it's down 35%. And that's just the, the tail end of this crash that's been going on. But the rupee is crashing. The government is only about two months away from total default. I think they said they have two months left of international reserves to help pay their debt. They're reaching out everywhere to try to find somebody to lend them money to get them through this next period. China has said no. The Arab states have said no. And now it looks like they're going back to the IMF. Now, the problem with the IMF is, you know, there's always austerity attached. So the IMF said, okay, we'll rescue you, but you need to cut your subsidies on fuel, you know, and impose all these austerity measures in your country and cut corruption and all of that stuff. So that is Pakistan's hard choice right now. Will they be able to do it? We will see. But the the clock is ticking. The next couple months should be very interesting stuff going on, developments happening in Pakistan. And that's all I have on Pakistan. What do you got to respond with that, Christian? I mean, one, it's really, really sad to see it all go down. But, you know, this has been something that has been talked a lot about on FedWatch and in Bitcoin circles. But the kind of domino fall of fiat currencies and instable regimes that were built on trash policies that were kind of just financed by fast and easy credit. All of that is starting to grind down to a halt. And we're starting to see these, you know, nationwide destructions of credibility and defaults and destruction of fiat value. And, you know, again, it's insane to see, you know, the dollar just acting as this kind of like wrecking ball going and, and murdering fiat. But ultimately, it's just like a sign of, you know, things are, are, are breaking is that the dollar is destroying fiat. And at the same time, the dollar is getting crushed against you know, every other hard asset. So it's amazing to watch in real time, honestly, like we're living through history. So and I think it's really important to point out, you know, all of these, like I said, all of these examples, they're connected to China, they're ch connected to the WEF, they're connected to easy money that effectively 
created some sort of narrative action policy initiatives, whether it's support, whether it's different farming practices that could not have been sustained and could not have been put into motion without that easy credit, without that, you know, super mark, you know, kind of greater than the market activity. So I, I guess I'm kind of going on a rant here, but there there's a very clear through line in general between these two examples, and I think we're just going to see a lot more of this to come. So I'm 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 curious, Ansel. You know, do you have an indication of when what's the next domino to fall? Like, you know, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. It, maybe are we looking at countries on on this board? We've been talking about Europe being in a tough situation in general. Maybe it's the EU, but I could definitely see some smaller independent nation states going first. Yeah, well, specifically in the realm of the Belt and Road stuff, I think Central Asia is going to have problems. Right now, they seem to be fairly united with Russia, and China is being a big supporter of this the, the situation over there in, in Russia and Ukraine. But... You know, Central Asia has a lot of problems because historical problems, ethnic problems, historically ethnic problems. And the U.S. left $5 billion worth of equipment in Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is Pakistan's neighbor. It's also neighbors with Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan and all these other places. So I can see maybe some uh, economic problems moving up into Central Asia from Pakistan. Uh, That would be my kind of wag at the future at this point. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, it's hard to tell when, where, where the next kind of crack is going to emerge. But I think the only thing that's guaranteed is that more fiat debt driven systems are going to continue to fall. Do we want to jump over to another kind of crack in geopolitics, which is what's happening with Taiwan and China? Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Yeah, yeah. So before we bring up that art, I just wanted to give a little background. So I didn't know where to start exactly on this. I know our audience is probably up to speed on all of the major developments. Nancy Pelosi went over to China and against the express wishes of the CCP. They really talked really, really tough that she is not welcome, et cetera, et cetera. But she went anyway and nothing really happened. So if you guys are, if you guys would join me on my Telegram live streams, I was kind of following this day by day and saying, no, China's not going to do anything. This is not going to amount to anything. And that's pretty much what we saw. After she left, they did start some military exercises and so that i have an image of that one so if we could bring up number eight slide number eight this is just a map of some of the areas around taiwan that they were doing uh, strikes 
with their long range missiles. They're also using their naval assets to go in and out of those those boxes. The darker boxes closer to the Chinese coast, they are the historical kind of military exercise areas. These pink ones or the orange ones, whatever color that is, they are, those are the new ones. And you can see number four is directly over Taiwan and the missiles that they fired from mainland China went, were visible from Taipei. So that, that's pretty significant. But it, overall, it was not really that strong of a reaction. They launched a few missiles, they did a few things, but everyone knew that they weren't, at least I think uh, most analysts, uh, geopolitical analysts knew that China wasn't going to attempt anything. I have a few quotes here that I wanted to read through. The first one is from, what's his name? Wang Yi. He's the foreign minister in China. I think the foreign minister to Taiwan. And he had a speech on the 5th, and that is the day I think Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taipei. And he was talking really strong. At the time, I pointed out that the Chinese, you know, they're really into the art of war and they're going to look strong where they're weak. And so all of this really strong rhetoric building up to this trip told me that they were weak there. We'll get a little bit more into that on the next next quote. But here, this is what Yang Wei had to say, or Wang Yi. He stressed that the U.S. attempt to use the Taiwan card to contain China is only wishful thinking. It will by no means hold back the historical trend of Taiwan return to the motherland, nor can it stop the historical progress towards great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. The, tai the Taiwan independence forces attempt to seek independence by soliciting U.S. support is nothing but a fantasy, which is doomed to be a dead end, and it will only tighten the noose around their necks. Skipping down a little bit. Regarding the U.S. allegation that China is changing the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, Yang Yi, or Wang Yi, sorry, said that this is out this is an out-and-out out lie and groundless accusation. Taiwan has never been a country. There is only one China in the world, and both sides of the Taiwan Strait belong to the one and same China. This has been the status quo of Taiwan since ancient times. Yeah, right. Since the Democratic Progressive Party took office, that is the ruling party in Taiwan, it has been pushing for incremental Taiwan independence and de-Sinanization, or de-Chinanization. And... Uh, trying to create the false impression of two Chinas or one China and one Taiwan on various occasions. Isn't this blatantly changing the status quo? If M Mr. Wan Yat-sen were alive, we're still alive. He would tell Tai Inwen, I think that's the president of Taiwan, that lady that met with uh, Nancy Pelosi, to her face that she has betrayed her ancestors. And in another translation, I read that after ancestors, he said, and his race. So she has betrayed her ancestors and her race. So that's the type of rhetoric you're getting from China. Christian, stop me if you want to, but I'm going on to the next thing here. I mean, it's just wild. Can you imagine that kind of rhetoric from any Western, you know, politician? It's just, it is really wild. But I mean, you've been calling weakness here. And uh, I'm sure as we continue to talk about China, we're going to talk about how poor their position is uh, geopolitically. Yes, and domestically. 
so it's starting to change a little bit domestically as well. You know, we've we've talked about the boycotts of the mortgages of the pre-sailed homes. We've talked about bank runs going on in China. So domestically, they're having problems. But and this case is no different. So here's another article. I'll include it in the show notes. I'll link to this because this is the first time I've read this blog, but it's from Chinatalk.media. And the headline is Elite China Copes with Pelosi Visit. Nationalists and moderates alike cope with China's underwhelming reaction and turned the PLA into a Weibo laughing stock. The example they they cite here is someone put that chart that I just showed you, the map of the exercise areas on Weibo, and this was the top response. Quote, I get not going to war, but next time don't talk so tough. It's embarrassing to listen to. The next quote, so useless. We're a laughing stock. Next quote, rather we'd save the money. So the Chinese netizens, as they're called over there, are not too impressed with the reaction from the CCP, the reaction from the PLA, and their think tanks as well. So scrolling down in this article that I have here, this is a quote from Professor Wang Wen. Wang serves as the executive dean at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University in China. And he's the executive director of the China-U.S. People-to-People Exchange Research Center. So he's supposedly some big think tank guy over there. He has a bunch of quotes in this article, but I'm just going to hone in on like five paragraphs here. Some denizens were disappointed that we had not used the opportunity to carry out an armed reunification with Taiwan, but they underestimate the wisdom of the present response. It is brilliant and rational. And it, sorry, and it represents China as a responsible and peaceful global power. In terms of military power, China is more than capable of toppling Taiwan. That is reunifying with Taiwan by force. However, I have pre, as I previously stated, armed reunification is a necessary but not sufficient condition for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So they're talking about reunification, but I thought they were one China. I thought this is the whole policy that, you know, one China here, one China in the, the Wang, what was this Wang Yi's statements just a minute ago, everything is about one China, but he's saying right here that they have to reunify with China by force. Anyway, continuing on, not only do we need to consider when to start the reunification process, but also how to best serve our national rejuvenation following the reunification. The crux is that China needs to outperform the U.S. in terms of economic power, attain financial and military strength comparable to that of the U.S., and develop an overwhelming capacity to counter international sanctions. By doing this, the U.S. will no longer be able to form an external force to interfere in our affairs after the reunification in the long run. Consider what would have happened if Pelosi's plane had been shot down, as some have speculated, or if armed forces had been used directly against Taiwan. Such, such actions could have resulted in a major military clash between China and America, possibly leading to world war. A major military clash with the U.S. is not the goal of China's foreign policy nor is it the path to a better life for the common people. That's very important. The think tank folks over there in China are saying war with the West is not the path to a better life for the common people. Continuing, recall that Sun Tzu wrote in The Art of War, do not act unless there is something to gain. Do not use military force without the certainty of victory. 
do not go to war unless the the situation is critical. And that's what I have from these two kind of, this is the Chinese and the Taiwan posts, you know, their internet over there. So passing it back to you, Christian, what are your thoughts on what was just said there? It's really interesting to hear the different perspectives from, you know, the people in China, the people kind of like involved with the situation, the people kind of more on the ground. When it comes to kind of the netizens being critical, I'm honestly a little shocked to hear the negative criticism just because my assumption was that there really wasn't any critical free speech that was uh, allowed or sanctioned or possible. So, you know, I, I personally am not a China expert. So uh, I was a little shocked by, you know, even that amount of disdain and that amount of, you know, kind of critical commentary being tolerated. But with that being said, you know, when you are looking at what is happening in China right now, like you said, domestically, people, despite this kind of totalitarian dystopian techno surveillance state people are still rising up people are still getting fed up so there is a point where enough people will break with the ccp and break with the enforcement and once that happens we could really see something crazy happen in china so the fact that people are kind of emboldened and are becoming more emboldened it'll be really interesting to how it continues to shake out but To be honest, like kind of going back to Nancy Pelosi going over to Taiwan, I was pretty surprised by the move. Generally speaking, I'm not the biggest Nancy Pelosi fan, but it does seem to have been kind of a very strong and correct geopolitical move on her part, despite a lot of criticism that was kind of happening beforehand. What's kind of your take there? I know that you also kind of agreed from a geopolitical perspective that it was a shining moment for for Senator or Congresswoman Pelosi. Yeah, well, I I despise her as well. I didn't I I don't agree with what she's doing. But I uh, what I thought was that this was a kind of a big brain move for for the US apparatus, because China had no response to this. They're really weak with their their credit collapse happening. I don't really have too many updates for the credit collapse this week, but so the credit collapse happening plus this Belt and Road initiative with all of their kind of satellites that they are setting up along this Belt and Road seems to be collapsing. And now Pelosi snubs the, you know, gives them middle finger across the Taiwan Strait. That is to me kind of exposing the weakness of China. And that really probably was humiliating. Now, from like a CCP perspective, I'm not, obviously I'm no think tank person on the CCP, but I do follow several people that talk about this all the time. And my, my opinion is, you know, this could weaken Xi quite a bit. And if Xi goes down, they have the 20th party Congress coming up later this year. What is going to happen with that? There's going to be a lot of tension over there in China. This is not a time for them to start war, to start some conflict. So we could see something else we could see some other provoking of china perhaps sailing of a carrier through the taiwan strait i don't know but this is and maybe i'm blind because i i look out at china and i see collapse coming and a lot of people that i talk to people in my telegram channel they, they always constantly ask me about the state of the u.s and civil war in the u.s and and i don't see it but maybe 
maybe I am just blind to the problems in the U.S. and I'm seeing all these problems around the world. But I really do think that China is in in the weakest spot right now, even weaker than Europe, which is surprising to say. So those are my thoughts on yeah, Nancy Pelosi. Do we, do we want to hit on this this graphic that you have documenting the failed payments from these Chinese developers? Sure. Yeah, so I, I couldn't really find too much new stuff. I do know that the the central government is trying now to bail a few people out, a couple billion here and a couple billion there. But, you know, this is a multi-billion, hundred billion or trillion dollar problem. So a couple billion here or there, it might just take the edge off for cronies, certain friends of the CCP, but it's not going to stop the the total collapse of the real estate market. This This chart right here is just showing the number of Chinese developers who have failed to pay their suppliers that not that have defaulted on their debt, but you know, have failed to pay their suppliers and probably are having trouble completing projects or, or even starting projects. I don't know, but it, uh, in June, it got up to 62%, which is 62% of all the, the Chinese re- property developers are having problems paying their wow. bills. That's big. Yeah. And this escalated quickly. It started at, at, you know, about a quarter at the beginning of the year. And, you know, it didn't take very long to get to over 50%. Yeah, but you can see it did kind of slow down a little bit. It was at 61% in May and, and 62% in June. So perhaps there is some relief in the near future. But I don't know. I think that credit collapses happen, uh, you know, in acute phases. So perhaps they're, they're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. Yep. You know, gradually then suddenly that's typically how it goes. So it would be scary if that gets to, you know, a hundred percent, you know, obviously we're already getting there. But again, when you build based on cheap credit, this is what happens. That's kind of the point about why we endorse Bitcoin is because Bitcoin is this economic substrate that actually incentivizes for appropriate allocation of capital. And that's going to make a better world with a lot less waste, a lot less pollution, and hopefully happier people. Yes, I did hear some other news as well about billionaires. So, you know, Jack Ma, he's that the Alibaba founder and ant group and all that. Yep. He recently got out of the country. So he gave up his controlling interest in his companies, and now I think he's in Europe somewhere. A lot of billionaires, I'm, I'm, I've heard this through the kind of grapevine or the, the macro rumor mill that there's a lot of billionaires over there in China, maybe a hundred or so, that want to get out of the country. And this is all coming to a head as well. Now, how do they flee? How do they flee with their money? They can't flee with yuan. They can't flee with a billion dollars in gold but they could flee with some Bitcoin. So we'll see if that puts a bid under the market. We've been talking about how Bitcoin is primed to benefit from capital flight that is going to be happening within collapsing economies like Europe, potentially within Asia and China in particular. Um, So that's definitely part of the thesis here for Bitcoin is that these are two separate systems, the collapsing debt fiat system, and then the virgining Bitcoin system. uh, And, Uh, People are bridging between them, and as Bitcoin grows, it becomes a better and more palatable, you know, economic space for people to 
build an economy and continue to build forward. So hopefully as Bitcoin's features of permissionlessness, censorship resistance, digital bearer nature, all of those fantastic aspects of Bitcoin that we know and love, that makes it a great tool for people to eventually transition to that system as they need to leave where they're at, need to abandon the existing system. Absolutely. And that's all I have on China. That's all. I didn't prepare anything on Europe. I thought we'd take a break from Europe this week. And uh, Too much Europe bashing. <laughs> Europe needs big, Bitcoin. Listen to my podcast with Stefan Levera. I mean, they, they should have come out with their CPI. I didn't even see that released from, you know, the, from the Europeans yet. But the U.S. is having the CPI come out tomorrow. So... What are the experts expecting? I, I don't know. I, you know, I've been expecting to have CPI fall for the last few months, and that hasn't come true. But this, this month, even the Chicago or the Cleveland Fed, who puts out the inflation now predictor, you know, we've talked on the show here about the GDP now that is from the Atlanta Fed, and that's pretty accurate, I think. Uh, but the uh, inflation now from the Cleveland Fed is saying that they expect this month to have uh, the month over month uh, CPI at 0.3% and the year over year CPI at 8.8%. So that would be down from 9.1 to 8.8 and down on the month over month from 1% down to 0.3%. I look a lot more, I care a lot more about the month over month rate because I think the year over year can hide a lot of nuance and a lot of different things that aren't you know, obvious at first glance. So I like the month over month rate. That's, that's what I got for CPI, man. That's it. So CPI is finally going to go down. You've been calling for this for a while. Hasn't happened quite yet. What does, <laughs> does that justify the, the Fed pivoting or... How does that affect the narrative? Well, Powell has called for that he will pivot or he will reevaluate his monetary policy when there are multiple months of consecutive PCE inflation declines. So this is the uh, this is the other measure, not CPI, but it's PCE, and that's the one that, that Powell really likes and the Fed usually uses. So if there's multiple month over month declines, that's when he will look at possibly pivoting, but you know, I don't think it's up to them anyway. The The market is in control. The market is going to tell them what's up. The three-month, 10-year spread is still crashing. I think it, it got down to one, uh, no, sorry, 11 basis points this morning when I checked it. So it is, I mean, everything about this market is screaming recession. It's screaming tight dollars. And the Fed has to, eventually they have to act or people will just ignore them. I guess, what what does that look like in terms of they have to act? Does that mean they have to pivot? But even if they pivot, do people still ignore them? You know, I think that that's potentially what, what could happen down the line when once the myth of the Fed is, is bust. But I guess yeah. what's the – you want to talk about that a little bit more? Well, they – so, yeah, the, the Fed gets their power from mythology around the Fed. And they have – power their their main power is in panic reduction so if there's a acute crisis they can come in and say hey i got your guys's back i'm going to be a lender of last resort i'll buy up whatever you need you know uh, just calm down it's okay the market is not going to crash and so they can they can 
talk the market into calming down and not panic selling everything. But this monetary policy stuff, they, they really don't have any slow walk capability. So they, what's going to happen is the Powell is just kind of matching what's already going on in the market. That's my opinion. So if you look at his position last summer, so let's rewind to the summer of 2021, Inflation was starting to tick up. I believe in April, it broke 2%. And then by June, it was like 6% or something. So it was starting to tick up. And Powell was looking at this and he thought it was transitory, but it kept going and he needed to do something. He knew that a recession was coming because of, you know, if prices increase, then eventually people aren't going to be able to afford more things and that's going to slow down the economy right so he's he's already looking forward a year saying there's going to be a recession in a year and he did actually see that because i believe there was a recession that uh, in the first two quarters of this year so he saw that coming so to get ahead of that what did he have to do he had to pivot hard he had to pivot really hard and get ahead of the narrative into tightening and that's what he has done now he's continued on that narrative until something forces him to change until the narrative goes the other way then he will race to get in front of that narrative that's how the central bank works they they look like they're so confident and they keep doing their thing for a long period of time and then they flip on a dime and they go the other way i don't see that this is going to be anything different the fed is going to do the exact their mo is not going to change powell has even done this before right powell did a pivot in 2019 exactly like this after raising rates to roughly the same level, actually, he paused. He Then he paused and they were doing QT. He stopped QT and immediately started QE and cut interest rates. So he's already done a pivot like that. I just expect Powell, his MO to come back once again. So that's what I would say, explain the, the Powell pivot and where I see the Fed and how they're going to react in, in coming months. So... Pivot in the fall in conjunction with economic crisis? Pivot in the fall. We will have to see what the rates are doing. I, I do think they will pivot, yes, because the 10-year the is dropping. But if the 10-year stops dropping, then maybe we, they won't pivot till next year. We'll see. But the, the market is going to be in charge, not Powell. You, you'll be able to look at the, the yield curves and... Uh, inflation expectations and stuff like that and say, okay, well, Powell is going to, going to pivot. So uh, by the way, inflation expectations are starting to come down as well. Not only the like market driven inflation expectations. So what we kind of algorithmically derive from market rates on yields and things, you can see what is the expected or implied expected inflation. Those have always stuck around two to two and a half percent and they remain at that same level. But even CPI uh, expectations are starting to turn over and come down. These are numbers done by the New York Fed. So all in all, it does look like the economy is slowing down. People think recession is here and CPI is going to fall. So that leaves room now for Powell to say, see, I told you so. Now I'm going to come in and help the market to a soft landing by cutting. It's, it's all just narrative management. Yeah, I mean, again, I just would like to zoom out and say, like, we live in a system where the monetary 
order is managed by central bankers that one don't control the system two at best are trying to get in front of the narrative and appear as if they are in control and manage you know effectively do crisis management like that is not a very sturdy base in which to build an economy and you know, that's kind of why we are forced to watch the Fed. We're forced to pay attention to these meetings. We're forced to report on these projections, but hopefully on a better system. The These types of wasteful allocations of capital, wasteful uses of our human time, unproductive uses will, will lessen. That's the, that's the high level idea here. So for now, you have to watch the Fed. You have to kind of understand what's going on. And if anything, the Fed is becoming more and more important to your daily life just because if assets are important and what the Fed does affects your assets and the way that you store your value, then you're going to have to be paying attention to it. I know a great Bitcoiner, Matt O'Dell, he talks about the book, The Mandibles. But in the book, The Mandibles, the world is hyper-financialized and people are very in tune with everything that's happening with central bankers and global reserve currencies and investing in assets because it is a huge part of their lives. And really what Bitcoin is offering is kind of a return back to nature, a move away from having to everyone being a stock picker and for people to just focus on what they care about or what they're skilled in rather than, you know, having to double as an investor, as well as a global macro analyst, as well as whatever you do for your profession. So I really do think that we are living in this kind of crazy time in history that is very, very unique. And we are hopefully going to return back to, you know, a relationship with value that is a lot more simple. Yeah, I'll have to read that. I haven't heard of that book, The Mandibles, but it's also less efficient, right? The the you want the people with a comparative advantage in investing and in macro and in banking and how to allocate capital. You want these people that are good at that job to be the ones in charge of allocating capital. And if you have everybody doing it on their own and everybody is like a self-directed portfolio manager, that's that's a very inefficient way because most people right lose in the market so that that's not going to get the best results once you take that out of their hands and you allow them to concentrate on what they're good at so why does a dentist need to be worried about how his portfolio is doing on an hour to hour basis he should worry about you know filling the cavities or doing what he needs to do on the dental work not uh, worrying about his portfolio so uh, the, the economy will grow when people that are best at doing certain things do those certain things. And anyway, I just thought of that when you're you're talking. No, totally. And I mean, this is kind of an idea that I got from you, which is Bitcoin Alliance incentives, the Bitcoin ecosystem, people migrate to it because that's where growth will be. Um, and I've been on this kind of separate talk track that I'm trying to push Bitcoiners to be more bullish. And one of the things I try to unpack a little bit is, you know, Bitcoiners like to talk about infinity divided by 21 million. But when you're doing that calculation, you not only have to take today's infinity 
and divide it by 21 million, you know, and derive some sort of value per set. But you also actually have to analyze and try to like forecast what growth into the future will look like under a Bitcoin standard, because effectively what Bitcoin does is it creates a better and more productive world by, you know, removing all this waste and baggage that's existing in the current financial ecosystem. And that will actually increase the infinity, right? So if you have a better system for allocating capital and for people to be more productive and to create more growth and to propel us beyond where we are today, that is actually going to make the infinity bigger, right? It's going to have a world with more value. So if anything, Bitcoiners need to be even more bullish because not only are we going to hyper Bitcoinize what we have today, but we're building a better system that will actually create more wealth for the future. And if you don't believe me, then I would challenge you to go look back onto any, you know, technological advance on Bitcoin's magnitude, which you could argue that there potentially never has been one. But, you know, even if you look at the the creation of the internet or the creation of gunpowder or the creation of, you know, fossil fuels, you know, these things have unlocked a new paradigm of economic value that was never before possible. So coiners should be getting very bullish. I think they should be greedy at these prices, especially why people are fearful, but obviously, you know, stay very, stay very kind of conservative in terms of don't put yourself in a position where you're forced to sell if Bitcoin goes against you in the short term, because even Ansel and I, we pay a ton of attention to Bitcoin. We pay a ton of attention to what's happening in global macro, and we still can't even tell you what is going to happen in the next few days price-wise. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me of fixed pie versus growing pie, right? So yep. there's some people out there that think that there's a fixed pie out there and the rich get the fixed pie. That's why they're rich. And everyone else is left with, you know, a small portion of the pie. But, you know, capitalists think that there is a, in a growing pie. So let's make the pie bigger for everybody. So if you are, um, if you're looking to extend that analogy to Bitcoin, I would say like the dollar system is a fixed pie. And when you look out at the future, you see low growth and low inflation in the dollar because we're doing deglobalization, we are at the end of diminishing margin returns on debt. And so you see a fixed pie that there's some rich people already have that a lot of that fixed pie. Or you look at Bitcoin and Bitcoin is this beautiful growing pie that, hey, I can just jump in here and, and grow with the entire economy. And so I think that's going to be, yeah, that's a great, great way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we agree. Bitcoin is hope, as Michael Saylor likes to say. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't even talk about, yeah, in terms of growing the pie. You know, Bitcoin is providing financial services to the global south that has been largely ignored for all of fintech. So just by bringing those people online, just by saving them from the destitute that is their fiat and debt-based currencies. I'm, I'm, I'm weaving in debt-based currencies now because Ansel <laughs> has corrected me that yes. you know, we don't actually even have fiat currencies it's anymore. Fiat. Well, I guess a slight side note, did you listen to the Stefan Levera podcast? I'm, I'm shouting out Stefan Levera. He's been killing it, but his show with uh, Pierre Richard about how we're on a full reserve. We're on a full reserve fiat system now. No, I, I didn't listen to that. And I was on there a couple of weeks ago, right before you went on there. Yeah. And I, I didn't listen to the episode because I hate listening to myself. I don't even watch these oh, you live streams. It. You after, killed it. So, but yeah, this Stefan Levera has been crushing it. What did he, what did Pierre Richard say? 
You know, I think we're we, you're gonna have to listen to that one, and we are gonna have to get Pierre on the show because I think he has some interesting contrarian points about what is actually happening in the fiat slash debt based system credit that we based, find yeah. ourselves in, credit based system that we find yeah. ourselves in. Ansel, we need okay. to wrap it up. We got one minute. Where can people find you? Bitcoinandmarkets.com, free newsletter every Friday. You can also check me out on Telegram t.me forward slash bitcoin and markets i do a live stream there every day trying to do 15 minutes of live stream a day see how long i can keep that going you can also follow me on twitter at ansel lindner christian where can they find you ck snarks i'm shit posting on twitter all the time every day so and here on FedWatch. That's, those are pretty much the two exclusive ex, exclusive places that I ship host. But Ansel, it was a good rip. Chris, our producer, says that you got a shout out on Corey Clipston's episode of What is Money Show with Robert Breedlove. So a much deserved shout out. You, you should get more of those. But until then, everyone, make sure to follow Ansel. Make sure to follow me. And uh, enjoy getting back in with the hosts. And no, I've not tried Butter of the Gods yet, but that video sent me looks awesome. <laughs> I think, I don't know where Q and P are, but I think we're going to call it a wrap here. Thanks, everyone, for Q's listening. Q's coming back. Q's coming back. Oh, there he is. We're right, in the studio, baby. Chris, haircut <laughs> looks nice, man. Thanks, man. Stay bullish, y'all. Go to Bitcoin Amsterdam. See you guys. Promo code CK10. Save yourself 10% off. DM live. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today.
The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. Thank <laughs> you.